This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Hello everyone, welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan and thank you for joining us. With me today is Charles Eisendrath, former Time correspondent, founder of Grillworks Incorporated, former director of the Knight Wallace Fellowships at the University of Michigan, and founder of the Livingston Awards known as the Pulitzer Prize for Journalists Under 35. He is also the author of Downstream From Here, a collection of essays written over a span of four decades. Welcome, Charles. Whoa, I was enchanted with your book, Charles. It was a voyage into a lot of worlds. What brought you to write it? Number one, I love the word enchanted, especially oh. from you. <laughs> Thank you. I love that, and if I set out to enchant people, I would have been too afraid to write the book. But I'll give you a straight answer. It wasn't intended to be a book. Every summer at the farm, I spent a whole academic uh, summer up there with the family. We took them out of Little League. We took them out of any summer program, and they were at the farm. We all were. The theory was if you can't find something to amuse yourself with 160 beautiful acres in northern Michigan, it's a bad reflection on you. You shouldn't need a baseball team. So, but every summer I would write a, an essay or two about some aspect of what I was thinking about and how it related to the farm. And I would put it in a box. That went on for 30 years. And at the end of that, when I started to know I was going to retire, I thought, huh, I wonder what's in that box. I better have a look because it might be something I work on in retirement. So. I looked in the box, and I expected to find 75 pages. <laughs> I found 350, and I thought, oh my gosh, uh, this, this weighs like a book. Uh, I better think about this. That's how it started. And what is Overlook Farm? Overlook Farm is an old, it's a quarter section. All the farms in the old middle, the old Northwest, designed by Thomas Jefferson, were exactly 160 acres, which he figured, sitting there in Virginia as an aristocrat, was enough to feed the average human family, clothe them, give them fuel, 
and give them enough wealth to survive. And when I inherited the farm, everyone around us had 160 acres, just as we do. But in the, over the course of my lifetime, it's been subdivided and subdivided and subdivided, so most of those are gone. So physically, it's an old quarter section. I see, and why don't you tell us something about your early life? I was born into a, an urban family. I was born in Chicago, I grew up in St. Louis. My parents were, my father was a businessman who became an mu art museum director. My mother was a housewife who became a botany professor. They ended up uh, at, at Washington University in St. Louis. I grew up in that life um, and then became a journalist and became a, a national correspondent and then an international correspondent and inherited this farm which added something, another dimension of life to the urban side. It became an agricultural side. And tell us about this journalism career. Huh. Well, um, I think you'll get a kick out of this. It's in the book, everybody, but you know, <laughs> I want him to say it. All right, I'll admit it. Um, I was growing up, I had no interest in newspapers or journalism. I never read anything except the comic strips. Um, and I was engaged to be married, graduated from college. And the young lady involved, being a young lady, of course was much more organized than I was and had a job in St. Louis. And I, being um, a young man, was completely unorganized, disorganized, and had no idea what I was going to do while she had her job in St. Louis. So I asked my father if he knew anybody who might be able to get me a job or give me a job. And the only person he knew was a man whose art collection uh, he had cataloged. And that man's name was Joseph Pulitzer, owner of the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And he said to my father, sure, Bill, we'll put Charlie to work. But I had no idea what that meant. I thought I might be sweeping the floors or delivering newspapers. I didn't know what newspapers did. Um, but I walked in the door and someone said, go to the third floor. And I was shown to a desk and nothing happened for a week. <laughs> <laughs> and then a, a very, a boy came over, copy boy I learned was right. called. And he said, here, write this. And I said, <laughs> it's written already. And he said, no, 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 no. This is a PM daily and that's an AM uh, press release. So you take what's at the bottom and you put it at the top. And that's a news story. And I said, ah, okay. <laughs> that's how I became a journalist. It was a total accident. How did you become a foreign correspondent? Once I became a journalist, all I ever wanted to do was be a foreign correspondent. And that too came down to a specific instance. I was reading the publisher's letter of Life magazine, which is always about a correspondent someone who's doing something. And I thought, oh my God, this guy has my life. He speaks several languages. He's running around the world. He's meeting all the important or interesting people, not all of them important. Why aren't I doing this? And that's what I thought, that's what I knew I had to do something differently. I was working at newspapers and I had to find a newspaper or some place that would send me overseas. And did you? I did. <laughs> uh, 
you're going to think your listeners or viewers are going to think I'm really um, a basket case. But I went entrepreneurial. To, I went to Washington. Went to Washington to interview at um, for a job at Life. But the person I was directed to was the bureau chief of Time. I didn't really see the difference. I had no idea. They were published by the same organization, Time and Life. So I went in and talked to the, this man. And at the end, he said, well, congratulations, Mr. Eisendrath. Um, it's very nice to have you at Time. And I said, Time? <laughs> I thought this was Life. And he said, he got very angry. And he said, no, if you want to work for Life, start over and go down the hall. Now, do you want the job or not? And I said, yes, I do. That's how I worked for Time. And you went to Africa? You went to well, France? Well, we, uh, we started in Washington. Okay. I was a Washington correspondent. I covered national politics. The first uh, uh, Nixon campaign, Nixon Agnew campaign, I covered. And then we went overseas to London, Paris, and Buenos Aires. But we covered other places from those, parts of Africa, parts of the Middle East, all of South America, all of Europe. So you were on the plane a lot. <laughs> not only was I on the plane, uh, foreign correspondence is not terribly good for marriage. Uh, you're on the plane with no prediction. So occasionally you miss your own dinner parties. This did not go over well with my wife. Um, I had no idea where I was going, but the thrill part of it was someone on the phone, in those days it was the phone, saying, um, Prime Minister has been shot in wherever. Uh, I need you there tomorrow morning. So your job is to know how to get on a plane, how to get the flight, and how to get whatever tiny little bit of backgrounding material you need to sound reasonably intelligent in those days to four million people. And that got the adrenaline going. And caused you to rethink your life if you wanted the marriage? Do that again, I didn't hear the question. And it caused you all this it's sort of spontaneous travel yes. to cover a crisis caused you over time to change your life it because did. of it was hard on a marriage. It was hard on a marriage. Maybe a and frankly, I began to realize that I was good enough at what I was doing to get myself killed or my family very, very badly hurt, if not killed too. A friend of ours uh, in Argentina, man who was running the Associated Press Bureau there, took a bomb, not uh, in his office, but in his kitchen, where oh. his children were normally having breakfast. They happened oh. not to be there at the time. But that was a real signal for me that uh, I, w I was endangering my family. And how did you sort it out? I was lucky enough, I had applied for a national fellowship. Uh, the options were, uh, there are three in journalism. There's one at Harvard, the, the granddaddy of all of them. There's one at Stanford. There's one at Michigan. Um, I decided I would take a fellowship if I could get one, and I would use the year to see what I would, could figure out. I went to Yale, so Harvard didn't interest me very much. I knew about the Ivy League. I've never liked California. It's a place to live. It's a place to play, as far as I'm concerned. And we had just inherited this beautiful farm in northern Michigan. So Ann Arbor was the answer. And fortunately, uh, I got the fellowship. And we came there. At the end, I expected to go back to time. But I had seen the possibilities of what you could do as a professor. 
and uh, frankly, it looked like a lot like journalism without the need to submit a story afterwards. <laughs> you are witty. <laughs> you, could, you could spend your life learning, right. which is the best part of journalism. Yes. And depending on how you did it, you could either uh, spend all your life in a library or hardly ever go to the library. You could do research. You could mostly teach. In other words, you had a lot of freedom. It was like being general assignment in journalism. Politics today, art tomorrow, medicine the next day. That's pretty much what I saw, and that thrilled me. So what role did Overlook Farm play in that change? I had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, for sure. When we left Argentina, I was the bureau chief for Spanish-speaking South America, which is everything except Brazil. We had gone through um, the first, what led up to the dirty war in Argentina, very rough. I was getting death threats, and it was, it was not pretty. It was interesting, fascinating, but it was no place for children, let's say. The Chilean coup came in the middle of that. Um, we had been told by the intelligence part of the embassy, CIA or whatever, I never did find out at one point. So a voice asked, uh, have you considered taking a vacation? <laughs> and I said, not really. What do you have in mind? And he said, we th our information is that any time before 4 p.m. today <laughs> would be a good time for you to take a vacation. So it was that kind of life. Yeah. Um, we ended up, we went directly from that to East Jordan, Michigan, probably one of the most peaceful places on the planet. Uh, Junia, the first night there, uh, this is an old Michigan farmhouse, nothing special. We were on the second floor of a place I'd known all my life, and I woke up under the bed. <laughs> I was staring up, you know, at, uh, at bed slats under there, and Julia was over here where she usually was. But I was under the bed, and what had happened was duck season. Duck season had started, and down on the lake, people were trying to shoot ducks. And what I heard was gunfire. Oh. And that <laughs> cued me. And all my reflexes Anxiety. went off, yeah. and I was under the bed. Because if you're, a, if you're in a war zone and you're in a hotel, uh, and the firing starts, what you want to do is be in a high room. If you're in a low room, the, the bullets come down and are dangerous. If you're in a high room, they go up and they shoot out the ceiling, and who cares? You also either sleep under your bed or get under your bed for another layer of protection, or, as I did, you, um, <laughs> you go to the bathroom with your mattress, you put <laughs> the mattress in the bathtub, and you sleep in the bathtub, because that can protect you, too. Um, and you, you fill everything, every wastebasket and sink with water because you know the water is going to get cut off along with the electricity. And those are all my standard procedures. I noticed from the book that I laughed out loud at your stories of your time years. That with enchantment, is, I, can't, I can't get any better than that. No, <laughs> no. Uh, and the initiative, the way you handle things also at that time, and later, but differently. Later was different. Um, as I read the stories about the farm and starting 
the orchard, as I said, the intimacy of starting an orchard, and Elsie, the tree, and who had to come down. <laughs> you and did read the book. Yes, <laughs> I did. And how you came to know that sentient beings are in everything that is alive, and they communicate like the fish did. You know, let her they go. Do. Uh, the most important thing that the farm taught me, taught me lots of things about nature, also about myself. But the first thing that I began to, I didn't think, I felt, was that all the conversations about cruelty to animals uh, misses an important point. Animals are not the only living things on Earth. We are a very small part of it. The rest is plants, fungi, I mean, all sorts of things in between. The most important thing is life. And we take life all the time. And I began to feel um, not the same way about plants as I do about animals, but very close to that. And I began to look at them very, very closely and see that they suffer too. And they suffer in a very similar way to the way we suffer. If you hold a, a match to a leaf, it will curl. And it doesn't scream, of course, but it curls. Uh, and a scientist, I'm sure, will tell you that there are explanations of structural change caused by heat. I don't buy it. Um, there are structural reasons for what happens when you get shot, too. But what uh, the main thing is that life is being damaged or destroyed, and an organism responds. And so I began to think, we need to broaden this conversation uh, to include the non-animal part of life. Um, I thought about that a lot. You mentioned Elsie. I began to see plants, even in an orchard. We planted roughly 2,000 uh, seemingly identical little cherry, sour cherry tree whips. We made the farm for the first time in, in 100 years, a real working farm, into a cherry orchard. Um, we bought these trees, planted them, and of course you prune them. And you, need, you want them to grow a certain way so that they will look like a cherry tree. But, but some don't. They just don't want to do it. And no matter how you prune them, some of them are going to want to be a bush. And you trim them for 20 years, they're still a bush. Elsie had a different issue. She loved um, the show of reproduction. She might even have liked sex. But she had no interest in reproduction. So every spring, it would be Elsie would have the most beautiful blossoms in the orchard. She was much bigger than the other trees because unlike them, she had never produced one single <laughs> cherry, not one. She put all her energy into blossoms and growing these lovely limbs. I mean, you can get very human about things like a cherry tree. Not one, um, not one <laughs> cherry ever. The people who, who helped us run the orchard said, well, we've got to take this tree out, this useless tree. We'll put a, 
you know, a bearing tree in there. Said, nope, you know, I'm not going to touch Elsie. Uh, I got a very strange reputation locally because of my various whims, including the saving of Elsie. But uh, that made me realize that plants too are individuals, and they have their own. Uh, I don't know if we want to call it will, but you might as well call it will. I know you mentioned the secret life of trees, which I have also partially read it's a, a year or two book. ago. And I personally, some of my pines have diplodia blight, and I go out and talk to them. And this year they put out some greens, not so much last year. <laughs> and I had to thank, every day I thank them for trying, for trying. Absolutely. And, but this interest in seeing trees, that happened before you read the book, right? The secret, or? Oh yeah, oh, long before. I just realized that he was a real master. Um, yes. And I loved him for, for taking me further than I'd been able to go myself. Yes. Because I was not a professional studying this. I was just observing. But you also did it with the fish. You caught the yes. female and the male who rides close by oh. gave you a look. That, that just about killed me. Uh, Let her I'm go. A, I've been a fisherman. Um, I became a fisherman and a hunter when my children got to be the age that I had wanted to be both and became, became them, sort of. But I went much further when my children came along. We did it together. But the story you're, t you're referring to took place in northern Quebec. And uh, I was fishing with one of the two, my two sons, in a place called Angava. And we were fishing for brook trout, which there get this big. If in Michigan you catch one that's this big and weighs a pound, you don't have to buy any drinks in the bar. You'll be toasted. But these were five, six pound fish. Uh, we, were, we were fishing in a pool, a shallow pool, nothing special. And I hooked uh, a nice fish. And this happened exactly seven months after uh, my family had had a plane crash. Yes. Also on a fishing trip in Costa Rica. And my wife was horribly injured, 17 fractures, five in her back. And we lay for a while on the jungle floor, waiting, not knowing what life was going to be like afterwards. Um, and we'd been together a long time by then. It was 2000. We were married in 67. So um, at the latitude of northern Quebec, a brook trout this big is likely to be 20 to 30 years old. And nobody knows for sure, but the theory is that when they spawn, they tend to spawn with the same female over mm -hmm. years if you're in a, an undisturbed environment, which that was, completely undisturbed. And I hooked this fish, and you also realize there, if you catch one fish of a certain size, you're probably going to catch the other in spawning season because they're together. They're together the way any creatures are together. I hooked this fish, and I could tell from the way it was fighting that it was a female. Fewer jumps, different kind of fight, we call it. Um, than a male would do. And uh, I brought her in. I don't use a net. I brought her into 
me and I fished with a very uh, small, tiny bamboo fly rod. So I was holding it way back here and watching for, for the fish come in. And there was a sluice, utterly clear water, running with no, no bubbles, no ripples, no nothing. I could see maybe two feet in front of me this beautiful creature, which I was going to take, which I did, or was going to anyway. And just as I was going to grab this fish, I saw him. I saw the male in back of her uh, in the spawning colors, bright orange, white here. Looked like a they looked like military uniforms, these fish, in that time of year. And he was utterly motionless. His, in, his amorata was slowly trying to still get away. And to me, he, I suddenly realized they had probably been together about as long as my wife and I had. And he was saying to me, give her back to me. Give her back to me. We've been together a long time. So I did. I've never felt about fishing the same way again, ever. Um, I, uh, when I go fishing, I still, it took me a long time to decide I was still going to fish. But I decided I would do very, very little catch and release fishing because to me it became too much like serial torture. Oh, yeah. You, you catch them and then you throw yes. them back. If I am going to hurt something, I, wanted, I want to do what nature does. You kill it and you eat it. And uh, so in the summer, now still when I go fishing, when I catch as many fish as we are all going to eat, I just stop fishing. Good for you. That's it. I, I can't, I can't um, explain uh, why I would do anything else. I know it's not proper in terms but what of what you're saying, Charles, is that you went from an action life that gave you post-traumatic stress <laughs> disorder, right? Yes. And deviated to another world. You, you saved, and that you learned different things, maybe different satisfactions, maybe different ways of communicating or being in the world. That's utterly right, utterly correct. And it's, um, I get in trouble with my fellow fishermen who are you know, very, very keen on catch and release because the fish get bigger. Well, <laughs> that's to me a funny way of looking at things. Uh, yes, they do get bigger because they're caught over and over and over again. When they get hungry, they get pain. I, I, I don't like that. I don't want to be part of that. Thank you. So I want to uh, say a few words about this. Charles, um, is a very smart man, all this talk about other stuff. It's true, but it resides in a brain, and it resides in ambition, and it resides in perseverance, and those are good things to have in your life. He also, um, he also found in the course of his life a way to be uh, both, <laughs> it's kind of like a movie, action-oriented, and then let another experience mainly the farm and what he was doing at the farm, teach him that the worlds are much bigger than he probably experienced earlier on, especially dodging bullets. And that gave him an enrichment and I think a different philosophy or a broader philosophy of life. So in your own life, you have that opportunity. You have the opportunity to 
flounder around and even reinvent along the way. You also have the opportunity, if you wish, to keep yourself open. And in that sense of openness, you might find that your life is more enriched. So thank you for joining us. I'll see you next time. Remember, go out and do something generous, kind, and decent for someone every day. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you, just dear Charles. My pleasure. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.